Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Radio Westeros, episode 59. The Winds of Winter Primer, part five. Dorn. And welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere, and with me here today is Yokepoi. Hi there, guys, and we are very excited to be presenting to you today Radio Westeros's first ever foray into dawn as we continue with part five of our The Winds of Winter Primer series. Yeah, Dorn is likely to be extremely important to the upcoming novel, and so we're going to begin with a humongous recap of the Dornish chapters and the situation there. And that will include a special look at an intriguing mystery from the Dornish plotline. Arianne's plan to crown Marcella was thwarted, but George has thus far withheld who the leak was. Someone always tells, but who was it? Stay tuned for our thoughts there. And then we have intriguing sections on Ario Hotar, House Dane, and Doran Martell. All could be very important going forward. With a consideration of Doran's friends at court and the path of the notorious Sand Snakes, today's episode should be a good one, and will lead into our next instalment about Aegon and Co. in the Stormlands. And before we begin today, it's time to thank our patrons. Radio Westeros is supported by patrons, and as always, we begin with thanks to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Maltude, Pepper, Kelly, Laura, Daniel, John Wargarian, and Sister Winter. And welcome to new Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Seth and Joel I, first of his name. Thanks to all of you, and if you're interested in becoming a patron, check out our campaign at patreon.com slash to see what benefits you could gain by supporting us. And we do have a major patron announcement. Radio Westeros now has a private Discord forum. Patrons have access to this forum where we talk A Song of Ice and Fire, make new friends, and play A Song of Ice and Fire related games. If you are a patron, get your invite on Patreon. Contact us if you have any questions. 
And if you like the sound of joining a Radio Westeros exclusive forum, then sign up as a patron today and we'll see you there. And now, it's time to get started with Part 5 of our Winds of Winter Primer. Thousands are crossing the sands afoot to climb the Boneway so they may help Ilaria bring my father home. The septs are packed to bursting, and the red priests have lit their temple fires. In the pillow houses, women are coupling with every man who comes to them and refusing any coin. In Sunspear, on the broken arm, along the green blood, in the mountains, out in the deep sand, everywhere, everywhere, women tear their hair and men cry out in rage. The same question is heard on every tongue. What will Doran do? What will his brother do to avenge our murdered prince? There have been five chapters set in Dorne so far in A Song of Ice and Fire, four in A Feast for Crows, and one in A Dance with Dragons, from three individual character point of views. The first, the captain of the guard, picks up from the viewpoint of Ario Hota, the Norvoshi-born captain of Prince Doran Martell's personal guard in the days following the death of Oberyn Martell in King's Landing at the hands of Gregor Clegane. Besides giving us our first glimpse of Doran Martell and the famed water gardens of Dorne, in this chapter we're also introduced to Princess Ariane and the Elder Sand Snakes, Abara, Nymeria and Tyene. These four women should figure prominently in the Winds of Winter, so we'll be paying close attention to their characters in this episode. Dorn is literally introduced to us in peace and quiet. Prince Doran has chosen quiet reflection at the water gardens as he contemplates his brother's death. But as in the rest of Westeros, peace is in short supply in Dorne, and Doran's is quickly interrupted by the arrival of one of his nieces, Obara Sand. Obara's entrance is framed as a disturbance, and there's immediate antagonism between her and Hota as she demands to see Doran, and Hota following his prince's orders, declines her entrance. You are in my way, Hota, she tells him, across the shaft of his six-foot-long axe. He thinks, quick and strong as she was, the woman was no match for him, he knew. But she did not, and he had no wish to see her blood upon the pale pink marble. Considering, as we'll see, that these two will be together, spearheading a major operation for Prince Doran in the Winds of Winter, this line stands out as significant, perhaps even potential foreshadowing of future conflict, especially considering a thought that comes not long after, when Marcella's sworn shield, Aris Oakhart, is mentioned. Hotar had felt a certain sadness whenever he saw the man in the long snowy cloak, the times the prince had sent him down to Sunspear. One day, he sensed, the two of them would fight. On that day, Oakheart would die, with the captain's long axe crashing through his skull. And as we'll be discussing in this recap... Ario Hota was exactly right in this instance. So, in The Winds of Winter, 
Our eyes will be firmly on what develops between Hota and Obara when they're required to work together. In this scene, however, Obara, though angry, delivers her message and then departs, leaving the water gardens in relative peace. Her message begins with the passage we opened with, calling for vengeance, and concludes with a blunt request. Let me avenge my father. You have a host in the prince's pass. Lord Ironwood has another in the boneway. Grant me the one and nim the other. Let her ride the king's road whilst I turn the marcher lords out of their castles and hook round to march on Old Town. Doran tries to make Obara see the bigger picture, as even her father did. His point seems to be that Oberyn knew the risks when he took the opportunity fate gave him to kill Gregor Clegane in combat. Obara, however, is deaf to all words except for vengeance, war and spears. Her departure and return to Sunspear leads Doran to reluctantly conclude he must do the same. When he sets out the next day, he's soon overtaken by Obara's sister, Nymeria. Where Obara has been described as a big-boned woman with close-set eyes and rat-brown hair, the daughter of a sex worker from Old Town, Nymeria, whose mother was a Valentine noblewoman, is described as taking after her father, slender, graceful, and having, quote, all the beauty that her elder sister lacked. Nim's request is simple, if no less heartfelt, than her older sister's. Let me soar, uncle. I need no mighty host, only one sweet sister. Tyene is so sweet and gentle that no man will suspect her. Obara would make Old Town our father's funeral pyre, but I'm not so greedy. Four lives will suffice for me. Lord Tywin's golden twins as payment for Ilya's children, the old lion for Ilya herself, and last of all, the little king for my father. Again, Doran tries to soothe the anger of his niece. He points out that her father wasn't murdered, but died in a combat that he chose. He adds what one senses he wanted to say to Obara, but had held back. He went beyond anything I asked of him. Take the measure of this boy king and his council, and make note of their strengths and weaknesses, I told him on the terrace. We were eating oranges. Find us friends, if there are any to be found. Learn what you can of Elia's end, but see that you do not provoke Lord Tywin unduly. Those were my words to him. Oberyn laughed and said, When have I provoked any man unduly? You would do better to warn the Lannisters against provoking me. He wanted justice for Elia, but he would not wait. But like her sister, Nymeria has little stomach for waiting and wants only one thing, vengeance. With a warning, my sisters and I shall not wait ten and seven years for our vengeance. She leaves her uncle on the road and continues to Sunspear. When Doran arrives inside the walls of the Martell's seat later that day, he's greeted by his daughter and heir, Arianne, and a third sand snake awaits within, she informs her father, who was expecting as much. And so we're next introduced to Tyene, 
golden-haired and blue-eyed, the daughter of a scepter, who looks, thinks Hotar, as innocent as the maid herself. Tain advocates a course quite different from that of her sisters. It is she who first suggests crowning Marcella as a way of provoking war with the Iron Throne. Marry the girl to Tristane, declare her queen, and wait, suggests Tyeen. Let us hone our spears and wait. When the Lannisters and the Tyrells come down on us, we shall bleed them in the passes and bury them beneath the blowing suns, as we have a hundred times before. In this, she applies that her remit comes right from her now-deceased father, they must, or see the realm riven once more, as it was before we wed the dragons. Father told me so. He said we had the imp to thank for sending us Princess Marcella. Recall that Marcella departed King's Landing some five months before Oberyn arrived there, and so, of course, there would have been some overlap in Dorne where the Red Viper was able to meet the girl and discuss her usefulness with his own daughters. The chapter ends with Doran ordering Hotar to round up the Sand Snakes and confine them in the Spear Tower. Their ideas and their demands are just too inflammatory for someone as cautious as Doran Martell. But what's interesting is that the seeds of both Ariane's plot to crown Mycella and Doran's eventual decisions as to the moves he will take in the Game of Thrones are found right in those three brief interviews that George uses to introduce not only the characters but the setting and narrative arc of Dorne. Marcella is the elder and better suited to the crown. Who will defend her rights if not her king's guard? My sword, my life, my honour all belong to her, and to you, my heart's delight. I swear no man shall steal your birthright while I still have the strength to lift a sword. I am yours. The second Dorne chapter comes from a character we expect will remain the lone, single point-of-view character in the series outside of prologues and epilogues. Aerys Oakhart, hailing from the Reach, opens his chapter with a few pertinent thoughts about Dorne, including, He was a man of the Reach, and the Dornish were his ancient foes. Dorne is no fit place for any Oakhart. In this chapter, we get to see more of Doran's daughter, Princess Ariane, who appeared only briefly in Hotar's first chapter. A lot more, in fact, since it turns out Oakheart is on his way to an assignation with her in the Shadow City outside Sunspear. Like a number of his white-cloaked brothers before him, several of whom are referenced in the chapter, Ares is breaking his Kingsguard vows to be with a woman. As he walks, Ares thinks about Marcella and his recent conversation with Prince Doran. The prince essentially warned him about the mood of the city following Oberyn's death and his imprisonment of the Sand Snakes, and of the risks to Marcella. She was to be moved to the Water Gardens in secret. Doran instructed Ares not to alert his superiors of the move, 
for Marcella's own safety. Once Ares is with Ariane, two things become obvious. One is his extreme guilt and self-loathing over breaking his Kingsguard vows, and the other is that Ariane is a master manipulator. In fact, this chapter just might be a masterclass in a very specific type of manipulation. Ariane manages to leverage not only Ares's attraction to her, but his devotion to his duty as well. As mentioned, their conversation includes the long list of Kingsguard knights who broke their vows with regard to women, including Ariane's own great-uncle, to Ares's surprise. She also outlines for him the strength of Marcella's claim to the Iron Throne and, in an echo of Jamie Lannister's comment to Brienne in A Storm of Swords that it was that white cloak that soiled me, not the other way around, reminds him of some highly problematic facts of his service to House Baratheon of King's Landing, saying, Spare me all your pious talk of soiled cloaks. It is not our love that has dishonored you. It is the monsters you have served and the brutes you've called your brothers. Robert climbed onto his throne over the corpses of children, though I will grant you he was no Joffrey. This prompts in Ares uncomfortable memories of the shame he felt over beating Sansa Stark at Joffrey's command, which leads him to protesting that, with Joffrey dead, Sweet Tommen is now the king. And this is the point that Ariane most wants to assail. Tommen is younger and less well-suited to rule, she points out, and Ares begins to agree with her. When she reminds him that Viserys I chose his elder daughter to succeed him, the spectre of Kristen Cole is raised. The kingmaker thought differently and backed Rhaenyra's younger brother, though whether out of personal vendetta or true obedience to a specific legal tenet is up for debate, even in Eri's thoughts. In spite of the irony inherent in this discussion of a Kingsguard who overstepped his role, Arianne would have Ares believe that it is his destiny to make the choice Cole should have made, to be a queenmaker and place the crown on Marcella's head in opposition to tradition and the fact that Tommen has already been crowned in King's Landing by their family. She implies that once Marcella and he are moved to the Water Gardens, They will not be allowed to leave in order to prevent that very thing happening. Ares, tense and nervous as he is, fails to recognise the critical point of comparison between himself and Cole, that neither had any business being romantically involved with the women they served. And then we get the companion passage to Ariohotar's earlier thoughts about Sir Ares. When Ariane mentions that they will be guarded by Hotar at the Water Gardens, it says, Sir Eris frowned. The big Norvoshi captain with the scarred face had always made him feel profoundly uneasy. They say he sleeps with that great axe beside him. In the final several pages of the chapter, Ariane increases the manipulation, 
whereas she had previously been coaxing and cajoling, speaking of precedent and law, and playing lightly on his fears and desires, she suddenly turns the volume up to 11. She insinuates that, under Queen Marcella, Ares would be released from his vow of chastity, which would leave him free to marry her, Ariane. When he fails to immediately seize on the suggestion, being still full of doubts, she deploys one of the oldest of feminine wiles, tears. While her tears at first seem to be about his rejection, or potential rejection, of her and her plot, she swiftly moves on to suggesting that she fears for her own safety. Must I say it, sir, I am afraid. You call me love, yet you refuse me when I have most desperate need of you. Is it so wrong of me to want a knight to keep me safe? Ariane implies that her father would imprison her as he's done with her cousins, the Sand Snakes, and she reveals to him a secret that she's born since the age of 14, that her father planned for her brother Quentin to follow him as the Prince of Dorne, stripping her of her right as the eldest child, as, she implies, Marcella was being stripped of hers. She outlines the plan as she sees it, and reveals her knowledge of Quentin's journey to Essos, and suggests that his foster father, Lord Anders Ironwood, was setting himself up to be a new Kristen Cole. Obviously, Ariane has no idea of the background of Quentin's journey or their father's expectations of him, or of herself for that matter. Those details, crucial to her The Winds of Winter arc, will only be revealed to her later. Here, she makes several assumptions and succeeds in linking her own cause to that of Marcella, telling Sir Ares, So, your two princesses share a common cause, sir, and they share as well a knight who claims to love them both, but will not fight for them. The chapter ends with the passage we began with. Ares' statement of conviction that Marcella's claim was stronger than Tommen's and his declaration of love and devotion to Ariane. This is followed by a simple question. What would you have of me? Ariane's reply sets up what is to come. All. She knelt to kiss his lips. All, my love, my true love, my sweet love, and forever. But first, Marcella. It occurred to me that this plan of yours may not yield you what you want. And what is it I want, sir? The Sand Snakes freed. Vengeance for Oberyn and Elia. Do I know the song? You want a little taste of lion blood. In the third Dornish chapter, Arianne herself gains the point of view. About a week has passed since the Ares chapter, and this one opens with Arianne at a place called Shandystone in the desert outside Sunspear, with her companions, Andre Dalt, Silva Santigar, and Garen of the Greenblood, and a new character called Darkstar. Darkstar is swiftly revealed to be Sir Gerald Dane, whom 
Ariane thinks is the handsomest man in Dawn. Silver-haired and purple-eyed, she thinks their children together would be as beautiful as dragon lords. And yet, he's also described with words like cruel and angry, though examples of why aren't given. She only thinks that he's high-born enough to be a worthy consort and that Sir Ares would not like the smile he gives her. When Sir Gerald excuses himself, her other companions express their mistrust of him, but Ariane insists they need him for his sword and for his castle, High Hermitage. It isn't revealed how she knows him or how she communicated with him to get him to this location on this day, but High Hermitage being their final destination suggests that it is both remote and easily defensible, something supported by a look at its location in the Red Mountains, northeast of Starfall, perched along the swiftly flowing Torrentine River. Here, at Shandystone, as the group awaits the arrival of Ares Oakheart and Princess Marcella, Darkstar suggests to Ariane that wars are started, quote, not with a crown of gold, but with a blade of steel, the first hint that there are those who would use Marcella in quite a different way than Ariane intended, and that perhaps her father had been wise to seek to hide the child away at the water gardens. As well, Dane references the age-old discord between Dawn and the Reach, as represented by his house and that of Marcella's sworn shield. We get a sense of uneasiness regarding what might happen when the group is finally united. And that would happen within moments as Ares Ocard approached with Marcella just then. The girl was presented to Ariane's companions, who all took a knee and addressed her as Your Grace, to her obvious consternation. It took Ariane's friendly embrace and casual explanation about birth order and rights to alleviate some of her confusion, though she did remain curious about Gerald Dane. There wasn't Arthur Dane, Marcella said. He was a knight of the Kingsguard in the days of Mad King Ares. He was Sword of the Morning. He is dead. Are you the Sword of the Morning now? No. Men call me Darkstar, and I am of the night. Setting aside Dane's irritation at his cousin's wide-ranging fame for now, Sir Ares brought Ariane some news which he delivered in private. Tywin Lannister's death may not have had a huge impact on the immediate situation, but it certainly will impact the future of Dawn's plans for both Marcella and King's Landing. We also realise that Ariane hasn't shared her entire plan with the White Knight, proving that she is indeed her father's daughter. The group, now numbering seven, which Ariane sees as propitious, strike out for the Greenblood, where it becomes clear contacts of Garens are meant to have a poleboat waiting to take them upriver, all the way to Vaith, from whence they would make for the Hellholt in order to crown Marcella before crossing the deep sands and arriving at last at High Hermitage. Incidentally, it turns out the group are taking a similar route to the one Ariane once took when she tried to run away with her cousin Tyene to meet Willis Tyrell at Highgarden. 
She was caught on that occasion as well by her uncle Oberyn. Throughout the chapter, Arianne's thoughts about Quentin and her father prove just how much her own interests are motivating this plan. This isn't just about Dawn taking a stance and crowning an alternate candidate, making the War of the Five Kings into a new Dance of the Dragons by pitting brother against sister. This plan, at the end of the day, is mostly about Ariane seizing control of Dawn and dictating the region's position on who sits the Iron Throne. Arriving at the Green Blood, they found the pole boat, but Ariane has a moment's doubt when she observes it to be deserted. Where is her crew? It says she wondered. Garin approaches, calling for his kinsmen, and then. Ariohota steps out of the cabin, and Ariane's plans turn to dust in an instant. When Ariane begins to give orders to flee, Ario, now supported by a dozen guards with spears and crossbows, tells her, Yield, my princess, else we must slay all but the child and yourself, by your father's word. Garin and Dre comply, while Marcella is noted to be frozen in her saddle. Silver's reaction goes unmentioned, but Ares decides to be a hero, saying, You will not take her while I draw breath. And given that Marcella at this moment was in no immediate danger, Ario, having just declared she was to be kept safe from harm, we might be forgiven for wondering which she he's talking about. Yeah, certainly given the seriousness of Ariane's attempted coup, it might very well be that it was the elder princess he was defending. In any case, as Ariane tries to marshal her response, both Dre and Darkstar urge the White Knight to surrender, with Dane saying, Are you blind or stupid, Okar? There are too many. Put up your sword. Instead, Oakheart charged the pole boat. He was grazed by two crossbow bolts and his horse ultimately went down under a barrage of spears and bolts. But still he managed to cut down a couple of archers and jump clear of his horse with his sword in hand. But then came the dreaded confrontation between the captain of the guard and the king's guard. And it wasn't much of a contest, given Sir Eris's mad charge. Hotar struck him twice. The first blow removed his sword arm, and the second, his head. And then, in the confusion, amongst Ariane's cries of misery and disgust, she heard Hotar bellowing, After him! He must not escape! After him! And then she saw Marcella lying on the ground, clutching her bloodied face. Bound and disarmed, in the middle of a nightmare, Ariane faced the Nervashi, who told her that her father had commanded she be returned to Sunspear. But she asked, How could he know? I was so careful. How could he know? The reply is something that would consume her during her upcoming imprisonment, and which we'll address in the next segment. Someone told. Hota shrugged. Someone always tells. Darkstar had escaped him, the most dangerous of all her little group of plotters. 
He had outraced all his pursuers and vanished into the deep desert with blood upon his blade. In the fourth Dornish chapter, the final one in A Feast for Crows, Ariane has been consigned to a, quote, gentle prison in a tower room at Sunspear. Aptly named The Princess in the Tower, most of it deals with Ariane's grief and guilt over the death of Ares Oakheart and the wounding of Princess Mycella and her efforts to untangle the details of just who betrayed her plot. Ariane finding herself imprisoned over the plot to crown Marcella was foreshadowed in the Ares chapter when she deployed her wiles to manipulate the White Knight to join her cause. In that chapter, she told Ares, If Tyene can be imprisoned, so can I, and for the same cause, this of Marcella. She was speaking of her fears that her father meant to treat her in the same way as he treated her cousins. Ironically, she would land in her tower cell only after she went out and tried to carry through what Tyene had suggested. The chapter also contains long passages in which Ariane attempts to threaten and cajole her servants and jailers into helping her achieve her freedom as she grows more desperate and despondent, and her bitter thoughts about what she sees as her father's favouritism with Quentin. But in this recap, we're going to focus mostly upon the mystery of who told Doran the details of Ariane's plan, since that is one of the biggest unanswered questions from the Dornish storyline to date. Early on, Ariane runs through all the options to herself, and it's worth hearing her opinion, at least to underscore who the possibilities are. Someone told... Garen, Dre, and Spotted Silver were friends of her girlhood as dear to her as her cousin Tyene. She could not believe they would inform on her. But that left only Darkstar. And if he was the betrayer, why had he turned his sword on poor Marcella? He wanted to kill her instead of crowning her. He said as much at Shandystone. He said that was how I'd get the war I wanted. But it made no sense for Dane to be the traitor. If Sir Gerald had been the worm in the apple... Why would he have turned his sword upon Marcella? Could it have been Sir Ares? Had the White Knight's guilt won out over his lust? Had he loved Marcella more than her and betrayed his new princess to atone for his betrayal of the old? Was he so ashamed of what he'd done that he threw his life away at the green blood rather than live to face dishonor? While suicide by Ariohota is a tempting reason to attribute the betrayal to Sir Eris Oakhart, who was obviously tormented by the decisions he had made, it's made clear in The Queenmaker that Ares had been kept in the dark about the details of the plan. All we need is a few days... By that time, the princess will be beyond my father's reach. Where? He drew her close and nuzzled at her neck. It's time you told me the rest of the plan, don't you think? And so, while Ariane's assessment that Ares threw his life away at the green blood rather than live to face dishonor is highly likely to be true, 
it cannot be said that it was something he planned in advance. So what about Darkstar? Of all her co-conspirators, he's the one we know the least about as far as his history with Arianne, how he came to be involved with the plot, and what his motivations might be. It's stated that the party's destination is his home, High Hermitage, and it's made clear that if he were in charge of the planning, Marcella would be killed rather than crowned. But Darkstar is unaware of Ariane's underlying motivations, her suspicions about Quentin's secret mission and her anguish over what she sees as her father's betrayal. If he, alone or with the collusion of one or more of the Sand Snakes, had planned to kill Marcella to instigate a war with the Lannisters, he could have simply done so by biding his time until he could kill Ares Oakheart and then the girl. There would be no reason for him to involve Doran and Hotar unless he had been recruited by the prince specifically for the purpose of creating confusion by acting as a false flag. But that plan would presupposed that Doran had reason to suspect his daughter of plotting, and becomes unwieldy in the aftermath since things like Oakheart's death and Balon Swan's later arrival could not have been predicted far enough in advance. Okay, so while he won't rule out some sort of hidden agenda in the case of Gerald Dane, this is Dorne after all, where everything seems to have a clandestine meaning, we have to acknowledge that it's unlikely that he was the snitch, which leaves, as Arianne herself acknowledged, her three best friends, Garen, Andre Dalt, and Silva Santagar. We think we can rule out Garen based on his actions and reactions in the moments as the party approached the pole boat. It's obvious that he expected to find some of his friends or family aboard the boat, and his shock when Ario Hotar revealed himself seemed genuine. As does his punishment, sent in exile to Tyrosh for two years, with coin and hostages taken from his kin in Dawn, no doubt for their part in aiding the plot. In spite of the fact that he's a noted gossip, we think he's the least likely of the three to be the betrayer. Android Dalt, heir to his brother Sir Diesel Dalt of the Lemonwood, is another matter. He's portrayed as very light-hearted, and his reaction to Hota's appearance, immediately disarming and surrendering, could certainly be the mark of a man who knew what was coming. He's also noted to have wanted to involve more people, which Arianne declined, as that would increase the likelihood of being found out. Conveniently, that would also have decreased the likelihood of him being exposed as the snitch. Dre's brother, Diesel was one of the Dornish party who accompanied Oberyn to King's Landing and was likely among those who returned with Alaria and Oberyn's body after the fact. Diesel Dalt is noted by Arianne to be dutiful to Doran, though not extremely powerful. Dre's punishment... Two years serving Lady Malario in Norvos seems almost like a non-punishment, which could lead one to wonder if it was actually a reward cloaked as punishment, or a punishment given for appearance's sake. As well, 
One of Doran's favourite youngsters at the Water Gardens is noted to be adult. So it's just possible that House Dalt has deeper loyalties to Doran himself than Ariane bargained on. For these reasons, we give high marks to the idea that Dalt could have been the betrayer. But the final suspect must, in our opinion, be given even higher marks for probability. Silva Santagar, heir of the Spotswood, is noted to have been Ariane's dear friend since childhood. But other than the fact that she seems to have taken Marcella under her wing after the young princess arrived at Shandystone, we hear virtually nothing from her during the whole escapade. Unlike all of the others, her reaction to Hota's sudden appearance is simply not mentioned. And in fact, while we can assume that she was initially brought to Gaston Grey, the bleak island prison of Dawn, along with the others, near the end of this chapter, Doran has this to say about Silver Santigar's fate. Lady Silver received no punishment from me, but she was of an age to marry. Her father has shipped her to Greenstone to wed Lord Estamont. Now, five words stand out in that statement. Received no punishment from me. And perhaps it's being implied that Doran went easy on Silva because of her sex, or because her father, one of Doran's loyal vassals, suggested a more fitting punishment. But just maybe, when combined with the fact that the author seems to have intentionally hidden this one character's reactions to events as they played out, we should seriously consider that she received no punishment because she was the one who foiled the plot in the first place. If that were true, then Doran may have wanted to keep her well out of Ariane's orbit, since it seems inevitable that he would release his daughter and heir from her tower cell. We can assume that if Ariane were to discover that her best friend had betrayed her, some trouble might ensue, with the princess herself, or perhaps even with her cousins, the Sand Snakes, notoriously loyal to their family and equally notorious for the dark impulses bequeathed to them by their father. Perhaps it was thought best to give Silver a break from Dawn. And who exactly is Elden Estremont, the lord to whom Silva is precipitously married off? The references in the text are both confusing and contradictory. At one point, it seems he might actually be the father of Kisana Estremont, who married Stefan Baratheon and was the mother of Robert, Stannis, and Renly. In other places, he's referred to as Stannis's uncle or great-uncle. Until we know more, for these purposes, we'll accept the most recent interpretation, that Lord Eldon is the brother of Stannis and Renly's grandfather, even though that necessitates the deaths from unknown causes and without heirs of Lady Cassana's two brothers, who were noted to be alive around the time of Robert and Cersei's wedding. Well, since George is notoriously muddled about relationships such as uncle, cousin and grandparent, we wouldn't be surprised if this explanation eventually turns out to be more complicated than is necessary, 
But truly for our current purposes, all that really matters is that Lord Estamont is old. And that he lives on the remote island of Greenstone, snidely termed Green Shit by Jamie Lannister. Exactly. Spotted Silva is sent to a place where she won't have to face her friend Arianne for a long time. Since her new home is in the Stormlands, she wouldn't be expected to make any appearances at court. It would be hoped that the matter of who betrayed Arianne's plot would blow over and cease to be important at some point, once new plots had been revealed and enacted. However, since there's no indication that she's no longer her father's heir, and since her new husband already has sons and grandsons who would expect to follow him as Lord of Greenstone, and since he's noted to be very old, her return to Dorne to take up her inheritance at some point in the future is nearly assured. Right, so she lost but little for her role in things, except perhaps a measure of pride. It must be said that, setting aside a desire to hide the truth from Ariane, Doran is unlikely to want to encourage betrayal in his heirs in a circle. So if Silver were the betrayer, his no punishment actually becomes the perfect punishment for someone who provided a valuable service, but in doing so overstepped the bounds of loyalty. Okay, so there are our picks for the mystery of Who Told, with our odds-on favourite being Silva Santagar, though there are compelling reasons to consider several of the others, especially Andre Dalt as well. Let's leave that mystery for now and return to the chapter in which, after many weeks, perhaps as long as three months of imprisonment, Arianne is summoned to Doran's presence, where she finally learns much and more about her father's plans and what's been going on while she was in her tower. Aside from the discussion in which Arianne demands to know who betrayed her and learns of the fate of Princess Marcella, Doran reveals to her that another Kingsguard knight is on the way. Sometime after the incident at the Greenblood, Doran had written to Cersei, telling of unrest in Dawn and requesting that the head of Sir Gregor be sent, as promised by Lord Tywin, a symbol of revenge that he hoped, at least publicly, would soothe the cries for war. Doran also reveals that while Balon Swan is on his way, he's being delayed at each possible step. His journey, like Arianne's imprisonment, will last for months, with stops at Castle Will, Ironwood, the Tor, and Ghost Hill. Cersei had announced Balon's departure for Dorne in Cersei IV of A Feast for Crows before she was imprisoned. It will later be revealed that Cersei included in Balon's mission a plot to bring Marcella back to King's Landing and have Tristane murdered on the journey, things she accomplished off-page and in secret, proving the value of the unreliable narrator. And we'll discuss the identity of Doran's friends at court, who eventually deliver this intelligence to him a bit later. 
for the purpose of defining the timeline, will also point out that in Cersei 5 of A Feast for Crows, she hears about Silver marrying Lord Estamont. By the time Balon arrives in Dawn, some three months later, and sends news of Marcella's injury and his quest to find Darkstar, Cersei is in prison. Doran tells Arianne of this challenge making its way in their direction, how to explain Marcella's injury and Aerys's death, and Arianne has a ready plan. Blame Gerald Dane. Here she realizes that in order for this plan to work, her father would need her cooperation. Marcella will listen to Arianne's instructions regarding the explanation to be given to Sir Balon as she probably would to no other. This leads to an argument in which she finally reveals her anguish and the true motivation behind her plotting, her belief that her father favored her younger brother Quentin over her as his heir, in spite of centuries of Dornish tradition. Finally, after recriminations are made and confusion allayed, Doran reveals what his plan had been, the plan that had initially led him to grooming Quentin as his successor, and had now led to Quentin being sent halfway around the world on a mission from his father. Arianne had been promised to Viserys Targaryen via a pact made when she was a young girl that we later learn was secretly concluded in Bravos between Prince Oberyn and Sir Willem Darry, the Targaryen children's guardian. And now, following the death of Viserys at Vaes Dothrak, Quentin had been sent to seek out his sister Daenerys, to claim her hand in marriage in fulfillment of the pact. Doran tells his daughter, Your brother went with Cletus Ironwood, Maester Kedry, and three of Lord Ironwood's best young knights on a long and perilous voyage with an uncertain welcome at its end. He has gone to bring us back our heart's desire. Ariane, still in the dark regarding the details of the pact and who it involved, wonders what that might be. The reveal finally connects the Dornish arc to the main storyline in ways many readers wouldn't have seen coming on a first read. Vengeance. His voice was soft, as if he were afraid that someone might be listening. Justice. Prince Doran pressed the onyx dragon into her palm with his swollen, gouty fingers and whispered, Fire and blood. And we'll be getting back to Doran and his vengeance shortly, but now let's review what happened when Balon Swan arrived in Dorne before moving on to what happens next in this most enigmatic of location arcs in the series. Her plot to crown Myrcella had been betrayed and smashed, her white knight had perished bloodily at Hota's hand, and she herself had been confined to the spear tower, condemned to solitude and silence. All of that had chastened her. There was something else as well, though. Some secret her father had confided in her before releasing her from her confinement. What that was, the captain did not know.
the final Dornish chapter to date, A Dance with Dragons, The Watcher, is the second Hotar POV. Balon Swan has arrived at Sunspear and is being feasted yet again, this time by the entire Dornish court gathered to view the presentation of the object of his journey, the skull of Gregor Clegane. Dawn holds its breath, Hotar thinks, as Maester Kaliot worked to reveal the contents of the elaborate ebony box, crafted by Kyburn back in King's Landing, that Sir Balon had presented to Prince Doran. As in Ariel Hotar's first chapter, which began with a scene between him and Obara Sand, prefiguring some of what's to come in the Winds of Winter, this chapter contains numerous instances of Hota observing and empathizing with Sir Balon, again, possibly setting up what will come to be an important relationship between characters who seem destined to spend a lot of time together in the Winds of Winter. After the skull is presented to the General Assembly and Tommen is toasted, though not all participate, and Hotar makes careful note of who does and does not drink, dinner is served, and then Doran comes to the point. Balon has also delivered a letter from Cersei requesting that Marcella return to King's Landing with Tristane to visit. She also requests that Doran come to take up the small council seat so briefly occupied by Prince Oberyn. And Doran seems to agree with the proposal, but his suggestion that they go by sea gets a very strange reaction from Sir Balon, who's been observed by Hota to be sweating, in this case apparently unrelated to the spicy Dornish foods. Without having revealed the fate of Aerys Oakhart or the details of the attack on Marcella, Doran promises that the group will proceed to the water gardens on the next day, after which he excuses himself and his family for retire for a private chat. The family meeting starts with assessing the validity of the skull supposedly belonging to the late Gregor Clegane. While there remains doubt as to its authenticity since no one saw him die, Sir Balon only having reported that his screaming could be heard throughout the Red Keep, Nymeria states, If Gregor Clegane is alive, soon or late the truth will out. The man was eight feet tall, there is not another like him in all of Westeros. If any such appears again, Cersei Lannister will be exposed as a liar before all the Seven Kingdoms. She would be an utter fool to risk that. What could she hope to gain? What indeed? And Tyene contributes her expertise on the poison used by Prince Oberyn. I know the poison father used. If his spear so much as broke the mountain skin, Clegane is dead. I do not care how big he was. Doubt your little sister if you like, but never doubt our sire. But while the matter of vengeance for Elia might appear to have been settled, Oberyn's adult daughters now seem to be consumed by the idea of vengeance for their father. 
Ilaria Sand makes a statement about vengeance that stands as one of A Song of Ice and Fire's primary rebuttals of what is a major theme of the series. Oberyn wanted vengeance for Elia. Now the three of you want vengeance for him. I have four daughters, I remind you. Your sisters? My Elia is fourteen, almost a woman. Obella is twelve, on the brink of maidenhood. They worship you, as Doria and Larisa worship them. If you should die, must El and Obella seek vengeance for you? Then Doria and Larie for them. Is that how it goes, round and round forever? I ask again, where does it end? Disregarding Ilaria's plea, Obara insists that war is coming and that they must act soon. A boy king sits the Iron Throne. Lord Stannis holds the wall and is gathering Northmen to his cause. The two queens are squabbling over Tommen like bitches with a juicy bone. The Iron Men have taken the shields and are raiding up the Mander deep into the heart of the Reach, which means Highgarden will be preoccupied as well. Our enemies are in disarray. The time is ripe. Ilaria departs in frustration, having been assured by Doran that her younger daughters will be safe. While the elder sand snakes wonder what their father saw in such a peaceable woman and doubt that she ever understood him, Doran implies, as he has done in the past, that the reverse is true. Alaria and Oberyn were in complete understanding of each other, and it is Oberyn's elder daughters who have yet to learn a thing or two. And one of the things they need to learn is what the official position on Marcella and Sir Aerys will be. To her cousin's evident surprise, Arianne declares... Sir Aerys was slain by Gerald Dane. Darkstar did it. He tried to kill Princess Marcella, too, as she will tell Sir Balon. Doran adds, And now Sir Gerald has fled back to High Hermitage, beyond our reach. All three of the Sand Snakes immediately grasp the implication, though they remain doubtful that Marcella will cooperate with this version of events. Their input, as ever, swiftly escalates into wild plans to ensure the death of Sir Balon as well, much to Doran's frustration. He tells his nieces that they will accompany the court to the water gardens so they can learn the lesson of the pools that Princess Daenerys bequeathed to her son, one which had been passed down to the rulers of Dawn ever since. It is an easy thing for a prince to call the spears, but in the end the children pay the price. For their sake the wise prince will wage no war without good cause, nor any war he cannot hope to win. Finally, Doran delivers his nieces a lesson on the relationship that had existed between himself and their father. I am not blind nor deaf, I know that you all believe me weak, frightened, feeble. Your father knew me better. Oberyn was ever the viper, deadly, dangerous, unpredictable. No man dared tread on him. 
I was the grass, pleasant, complacent, sweet-smelling, swaying with every breeze. Who fears to walk upon the grass? But it is the grass that hides the viper from his enemies and shelters him until he strikes. Your father and I worked more closely than you know. But now he's gone. The question is, can I trust his daughters to serve me in his place? Once all three of the sand snakes have sworn their service to their uncle, he reveals to them the plot and counterplot which will drive the Dornish storyline in The Winds of Winter. First, he tells them about the plot to kill Tristane en route to King's Landing. This invitation Cersei sent us is a ruse. Tristane is never meant to reach King's Landing. On the road back, somewhere in the Kingswood, Sir Balon's party will be attacked by outlaws and my son will die. I am asked to court only so that I may witness this attack with my own eyes and thereby absolve the Queen of any blame. Oh, and these outlaws... They will be shouting, half-man, half-man, as they attack. Sir Balon may even catch a quick glimpse of the imp, though no one else will. This intelligence, he tells them, comes from Dorne's friends at court, the identity of whom we'll speculate on a little later, and who are surely also the source of the warning about Sir Balon's journey south which led to the delays he encountered along the way. As shocking as the plot is, Doran is ready with a counterplot. Obara, you will lead Sir Balon to High Hermitage to beard Darkstar in his den. The time has not yet come for Dorne to openly defy the Iron Throne, so we must needs return Marcella to her mother, but I will not be accompanying her. That task will be yours, Nymeria. The Lannisters will not like it, no more than they liked it when I sent them Oberyn, but they dare not refuse. We need a voice in council, an ear at court. Be careful, though. King's Landing is a pit of snakes. Tyene, your mother was a septa. Oberyn once told me that she read to you in the cradle from the seven-pointed star. I want you in King's Landing, too, but on the other hill. The swords and stars have been reformed, and this new High Septon is not the puppet that the others were. Try and get close to him. Once the Sand Snakes depart, Doran reveals that Ariane's own part will soon be known. He's had tidings from Essos, specifically Lys, about a large army on the move. Elephants are mentioned, though not dragons, and Doran thinks this could be Quentin and Daenerys heading west. Their landing place, he says, will reveal all, as he expects Quentin to make for the green blood. And on that note, they retire, planning to head to the Water Gardens the next day to enact phase one of their plan. And when we come back... We'll be analyzing all we know about the direction we expect Ariel Hota's point of view will be taking in the Winds of Winter. But first, let's take a break to acknowledge our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. 
Radio Westeros is powered by patrons, and we owe our thanks to Arrowdo, Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Oxheart, Amber, Hortense of Ashai, B-Word, the Queen Beyond the Wall, Blythe Spirit, Chris K, Christian, Sir Archibald Cadogan, Marja the Mage, David, Dean, Dibbles and Bits, Drew, Eliana Targaryen, Sir Sorsadelica, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, John H., J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady of the Frostfangs, Lady Silverwing, Infenderis, the Unspeakable Terror, Liam, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, Boss, the Sithorian, Sammy, Scotty, Tim, and Lady Diarliz of Castlenaki, the Alpha Patron. Do you want to know what the Sand Snakes, Prince Doran, Ariohota, Alaria Sand, Darkstar, and the rest will be up to in Winds of Winter? Quite a lot, actually. The sample will give you a taste. George R.R. R. Martin. That quote we just heard was George's words to fans on his blog back in 2016 upon releasing the second Ariane sample chapter on his website. That chapter, incidentally, is apparently one of three Dawn-related chapters that were moved from A Dance with Dragons to The Winds of Winter. Since we have now seen two Ariane sample chapters, which for the most part are outside the scope of this episode, as they find her journeying into the Stormlands, and since George later stated that he hadn't yet started working on her next chapter, we can assume that the third chapter moved from A Dance with Dragons to The Winds of Winter is Ario 1, as he's confirmed to be continuing as a viewpoint character, and George has stated that there will be no new viewpoint characters from here on out. So, a little logic goes a long way in untangling George's progress. 
And since, as mentioned, Ariane seems set to be focused on the action in the Stormlands, at least early in the novel, this will leave Ariohota as the main viewpoint character for Dorne, including Doran, Alaria, Darkstar, and at least some of the Sand Snakes. More recently, George has indicated in two of his 2020 updates that he's working on Ario and visiting Dorne. Although neither of these statements specifically indicates a number of chapters assigned to Hota at this point, or even that these forays into writing Ario, Hota, and Dorn are new or separate chapters, it feels safe to say that Hota will have multiple chapters in The Winds of Winter and will continue to be our fly in the wall in Dorn, The Watcher, as the title of his lone A Dance with Dragons chapter indicated. So... What do we know about Hotar's arc in the Winds of Winter so far? Based on the plans laid out at the end of The Watcher, we know that Doran intended to journey to the Water Gardens with his entire family, including the Sand Snakes and Balon Swan and his party, to see Mycella. From there, we can assume that a number of things happened based on hints from other chapters. In Cersei's first A Dance with Dragons chapter, her uncle Kevin comes to visit her while she's imprisoned by the Faith. He informs her of Marcella's injuries and Aerys Oakheart's death at the hands of Gerald Dane, called Darkstar. This news comes via a raven from Balon Swan, so we know that by that time he had traveled to the Water Gardens and spoken with Marcella about the events that led to her injury. Later, in Kevin's epilogue chapter, he thinks that Sir Balon is now hunting the rogue knight Darkstar down in dawn. It seems clear that Kevin has had another message from dawn, since later still, in the same chapter, he contemplates the composition of Tommen's small council, finding it to be split equally between three Lannister and three Tyrell loyalists. What he hasn't informed the Hand, Mace, yet, is that there would soon be another member joining them. The seventh voice would be the Dornish woman now escorting Marcella home. The Lady Nim. But no lady, if even half of what Kyburn reports is true. A bastard daughter of the Red Viper, near as notorious as her father, and intent on claiming the council seat that Prince Oberyn himself had occupied so briefly. So, following the Watcher, the group apparently went to the Water Gardens, from where Balon sent at least one message to King's Landing, probably followed by one from Doran, declining the invitation to join the council himself, and informing the regent of his intention to send Nymeria Sand, escorting Marcella for her visit in his place. Later in Ariane 2, the princess thinks about her cousin's journey, 300 seasoned spears had gone with them over the Boneway, past the ruins of Summerhall, and up the King's Road. If the Lannisters had tried to spring their little trap in the Kingswood, Lady Nim would have seen that it ended in disaster. Nor would the murderers have found their prey. Prince Tristane had remained safely back in Sunspear after a tearful parting from Princess Marcella. 
And we know one other thing that happened at the water gardens from the first Ariane sample chapter. As Ariane makes her way to Ghost Hill on the first leg of her journey north, she thinks about Ilaria Sand and her four daughters. Ilaria was returning to her father's seat at Hellholt. With her went her daughter Louisa, who had just turned seven. Doria remained at the water gardens, one child amongst a hundred. Obella was to be dispatched to Sunspear to serve as a cupbearer to the wife of the Castellan, Manfrey Martel. And Elia Sand, oldest of the four girls that Prince Oberyn had fathered on Ilaria, would cross the Sea of Dawn with Ariane. And that's really all we know about the action in Dorne in the Winds of Winter, other than a couple of things that George confirmed won't happen. Namely, Danny will not be arriving to burn the water gardens in response to a fan question, so in case you were worried about that. And he confirmed that events overall will not play out as they did in Game of Thrones. So from here on out, we're dealing with speculation and guesswork. And as ever, in that case, we can begin by looking at the backgrounds of the characters and the locations involved. Perhaps one of the main points of interest for readers is the possibility of learning more about House Dane and possibly visiting their ancestral seat at Starfall en route to Darkstar's holdings at High Hermitage. Kevin Lannister's epilogue states that Balon Swan is hunting Darkstar down in Dawn, and it's a safe bet that he's accompanied by Obara Sand, as that was Doran's stated plan near the end of The Watcher. Obara, you will lead him to High Hermitage to be a Darkstar in his den. The interesting question that's not answered directly in A Dance with Dragons, and one that has the most bearing on whether and how much we might learn about House Dane via direct point-of-view observation, is whether Obara's journey would be solo, or if she'd be accompanied by our Dornish observer, Ario Hota. And the answer to that can be found in the first Ariane sample chapter, when Ariane and Damon Sand are discussing Darkstar and Obara's mission. A regretful Ariane is thinking of Darkstar, her quote, most grievous sin, and hoping that her cousin would soon put an end to him. When Damon Sand cautions that the reverse could as easily happen, Ariane counters, she has Ario Hotar with her. No man can stand against Hotar. While their conversation moves to a discussion of Darkstar's character, which we'll be getting back to shortly, we have the answer to our question of how we'll follow the action of the hunt for Gerald Dane. And before we move on to a more broad discussion of House Dane and what the Winds of Winter might have in store for Darkstar, let's talk about the team-up of Obara Sand and Ario Hota. In our Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons chapter recap, we made note of their very first on-page interaction. In a tense scene, Obara arrived at the Water Gardens to demand her uncle take action following the death of her father. 
And, as we mentioned in the recap, some of his thoughts might be indicative of how their team-up in the Winds of Winter will go. Hotar thinks Oberyn's eldest daughter is hasty, angry. First in relation to her stride, but he goes on to recall that Doran had once told Arianne that Obara is chasing after something she can never catch. Her face is described as stone, and then even harder, her attitude one of supreme confidence and menace. She's boasted that she can master any horse or man in dawn, and she is quite simply not going to take no for an answer from Hotar, telling him he's in her way and threatening him with his own long axe. So, in the recap, we noted how Hotar's thoughts about Ares Okar turned out to be fairly blatant foreshadowing of their future interaction, and wondered whether this sentence might be a similar device. Quick and strong as she was, the woman was no match for him, he knew. But she did not, and he had no wish to see her blood upon the pale pink marble. It's also interesting that Doran has referred to Obara chasing something she can never catch, while her own comment about Hotar being in her way could also be significant. And then there's that exchange between Ariane and Damon Sand. When the princess notes that no man can stand against Hotar, Damon replies, is that what Darkstar is? A man? Combine this with Obara's boast that she could master any man in Dawn, and perhaps Darkstar, called more Viper than Man by Damon Sand, is being set up to withstand not just Hotar, but Obara as well. Yeah, all in all, we think the textual references are pointing to either Obara not succeeding in her mission, or at least things not going as planned. And besides the stated mission to hunt down Gerald Dane, we think that there is almost certainly a darker purpose to the expedition into the Heart of Dorne. We should not forget that Balon Swan makes the third leader of the group, nor the role he was to have played in the plot to kill Doran's son, Tristane. That intelligence is damning in and of itself, and combined with the Dornish need to reduce the flow of information out of Dorn, and the fact that, as a member of a marcher house from the Stormlands, Balon is a traditional enemy of the Dornish, and we see very little chance of Swan surviving the quest to High Hermitage. So perhaps some conflict between Obara and Hota arises in the course of carrying out their missions, both the explicit one and the unstated one. Hota himself seems very well practiced at carrying out covert operations for his prince, witness the arrest of the Sand Snakes and the ambush of Ariane's group at the Greenblood. Doran being Doran could possibly give his captain secret orders that he doesn't share with Obara, vis-a-vis how to handle both Swan and Darkstar. Or perhaps Obara, certainly the most eager for outright war of all of Oberyn's daughters, attempts something on her own, perhaps an alliance with Darkstar, whose overall viewpoint she seems more aligned with than Doran's. 
Whatever happens with this group, it's almost certain to be violent and to involve the deaths of one or more of the key players. Since we expect Hotar to continue to be our Dornish POV for some time, we think in the end Ariane's confidence that no man can stand against him will be well placed and he will survive the mission. As for the others, the only one we can give high odds of survival is Gerald Dane himself, as we said noted to be more viper than man. And so, in our next section, we'll be taking a digression into the background of House Dane and the roles some of its members might play in The Winds of Winter. He's highborn enough to make a worthy consort, she thought. Father would question my good sense, but our children would be as beautiful as dragon lords. If there was a handsomer man in Dorne, she did not know him. Sir Gerald Dane had an aquiline nose, high cheekbones, a strong jaw. He kept his face clean-shaven, but his thick hair fell to his collar like a silver glacier, divided by a streak of midnight black. He has a cruel mouth, though, and a crueler tongue. His eyes seemed black as he sat outlined against the dying sun, sharpening his steel. But she had looked at them from a closer vantage, and she knew that they were purple. Dark purple. Dark and angry. Perhaps no single house in the A Song of Ice and Fire canon holds more mystique than House Dane, a house from the dawn of days, according to Darkstar, who possess one of the most famous of all the ancestral swords in Westeros, Dawn. Members of House Dane played important roles in some of the key scenes of Robert's Rebellion, from the tourney at Harrenhal to the Tower of Joy. And then there are their curious looks, reminiscent of Valyrians, yet not Valyrian per George, and apparently far more ancient. Among the most enduring mysteries of the house that are likely to play a part in the upcoming story is who will wield the legendary Dawn as Sword of the Morning. Unlike other ancestral swords, Dawn does not automatically pass to the heir to the lands and title, but to the member of the family considered most worthy, while the criteria for that decision and who makes the decision have both been left vague by George for now, this technicality has allowed non-heirs like Sir Arthur Dane of Ares II's Kingsguard to hold the title and has left both sword and title unassigned since his death in 283, a narrative situation that very likely means that the author has set it up purposefully so that a new Sword of the Morning can be named in the main series. Currently, the Lord of House Dane is young Edric, called Ned, whom we met in A Storm of Swords serving as Lord Beric Dondarrion's squire in the Brotherhood Without Banners. As for the sword, after the death of Sir Arthur, and the events at the Tower of Joy in 283, Ned Stark journeyed to Starfall and returned the sword to Arthur's sister, Ashara. 
And there it remains to this day, as George replied to a fan query back in 2001. Dawn remains at Starfall until another Sword of the Morning shall arise. So, it's still vague as to how that might be determined, but assuming the title must go to a male, as far as we know, there are only two male members of House Dane in the current timeline, Lord Edric and his cousin Sir Gerald. Conversations around the future of the sword usually center around those two, or a possible dark horse candidate or situation which could arise to get the sword into the hands of someone other than either of them. And so let's discuss briefly what or who that dark horse situation or candidate might be. In our Long Night episode, many years ago now, we pondered whether Dawn's misty origins might be the same as another legendary sword, Lightbringer. We were certainly not the first, nor the last, to speculate about this, and it's still a solid option, we think, so let's take a few minutes to review the evidence. So, starting with Lightbringer, it's said to have been forged in the same way steel is, an anachronistic claim for a sword apparently used millennia before the use of steel was discovered. Dawn, like Valyrian steel, and dragonglass for that matter, is noted to be unnaturally sharp and is said to be thousands of years old. Darkstar says the Danes date from the dawn of days, and the author says the sword is at least a couple thousand years old, and that beyond that, history is too fuzzy to be accurate. Yes, interesting ambiguity. George has also said that Dawn has an illustrious history and its milky white blade makes it unique from any other known sword. So could that illustrious history involve the Long Night? It seems likely, given Darkstar's description, that the Danes were first men, and so it could have been around back then, though their Valyrian reminiscent looks do muddy the waters of their origins somewhat. As for the sword itself, it's described as having been forged from the heart of a fallen star, and it has that strange milky white colour which seems to indicate that it's not been forged from any metal we see elsewhere. In fact, the description used for it, pale as milk glass, is also used to describe the bones of the others. It's also said to be alive with light, a phrase used about the other's blades, the wall, Stannis' lightbringer, among other things associated with either ice or fire. All things considered, there are plenty of reasons to believe Dawn is somehow special to this story. It has mystery written all over it. And finally, there's the name, a simple thing. Dawn comes at the end of the night, and the war for the dawn is frequently used in the context of ending the long night, and Lightbringer seems to have been instrumental in that ending. So we wondered if it makes sense that perhaps the sword might have been called Lightbringer during the long night, and when the darkness went away, the magical flame went out, and it was renamed Dawn and sent to House Dane for safekeeping. 
And when Bran hears the song, the night that ended at the harvest feast at Winterfell, telling about the long night and the war for the dawn, as soon as he's alone in the same chapter, he finds himself thinking about Arthur Dane and his famous sword. So we see lots of potential hints involving textual associations, plays on the word dawn, and with the obvious symbolism of bringing light and ending darkness and night. So if Dawn was the original Lightbringer, fans have wondered if the reborn Azora High might end up in possession of it somehow, or if, having served its purpose in the original War for the Dawn, it will remain a relic and a similar process might activate an entirely new Lightbringer. As for who might wield the new Lightbringer, many of us feel that... A prime candidate to be a Zora High Reborn could be Jon Snow. And this is where the theories around Dawn and Lightbringer can diverge because it's hard to see Jon getting his hands on Dawn. And of course, he already has a Valyrian steel sword. And so theories that assert a new Lightbringer will be created using the same process that activated the original one can feel like the best fit for this option. Then again, it's entirely possible that George will present a narrative in which Dawn is presented to a new candidate, perhaps Jon Snow, by members of House Dane. Jon himself could gift his own sword, originally owned by House Mormont, back to a member of that house, Jorah or one of Lady Mage's family, for example. And so... We must keep a close eye on what happens with Don and House Dane in the Winds of Winter. This is precisely why the Aereo Hota chapters, where we're most likely to see not only members of House Dane, but also their seat at Starfall and the seat of the cadet branch at High Hermitage, are so important. The furthest south point of view could be connected in a significant way to the arc of one of our furthest north point of views. When Ario embarks on his quest to bring justice to Gerald Dane with Balon Swan and Abara Sand, we expect there's a good chance they will stop at Starfall. George has intentionally, it seems, cloaked this place in mystery for many years, but has indicated that there's more information about them, specifically a family tree that he's withheld for the Winds of Winter. This alone could be a hint that there's an important familial connection between the Danes and another character that will be revealed for a specific reason in The Winds of Winter. And speaking of familial connections, there's one that we know of that deserves a mention here. In the world of Ice and Fire, we learned that Makar Targaryen, the father of Aegon V, married a woman of House Dane called Diana Dane, Though remote, this marriage is the only one we know of that brought Dane blood into another major house, and House Targaryen at that, and it makes Daenerys the great-great-granddaughter of Lady Diana. Whether that connection is close enough to be considered significant remains to be seen, and of course, as we said, there's always the possibility that the yet-to-be-revealed family tree will unveil another, possibly closer connection. 
but since Danny is also considered a prime candidate for Azora High Reborn, we would be remiss in not mentioning it. As for the Danes that we know about, as we mentioned, there are just the two males, Edric and his cousin Gerald. As well, we hear about a young woman, Edric's aunt, called Illyria, who was once betrothed to Lord Beric Dondarrion and is thought to be presently at Starfall. If Arya's point of view brings us to Starfall, she will likely be the first person we meet. Illyria is a young woman probably around 16 or 17 years old, said to be the youngest sister of Edric's father, his uncle Sir Arthur, and his other aunt, Lady Ashara. Speaking of which, the fate of Ashara Dane is one of the most commonly speculated on mysteries in the series, with some people taking at face value the tale that she threw herself into the sea from atop the Palestone sword at Starfall, where others insist that she's still alive somewhere, with ideas for her alternate identity ranging from Scepter Lamore to Gianna Reed. The interesting thing about Ashara and Illyria is that Illyria appears to have been born around the time of Ashara's alleged death. This has led many to speculate about Illyria's parentage. Rumor was rife that Ashara had been dishonored at the tourney of Harrenhal and had given birth to a stillborn daughter, and fans speculate that perhaps the daughter wasn't stillborn at all and was instead reported as such, while the actual child was quietly given to Ashara's mother to raise as her own This was a relatively common way of dealing with illegitimate children in the real world right up to the 20th century, and as such, we think it's a solid theory. And if Illyria was Ashara's daughter, who would her father have been? Based on the story Mira tells Bran about the tourney of Harrenhal, many have speculated that the father of her child was either Ned or Brandon. In favour of it being Ned, we have persistent rumours that the two were in love, including Kat's early belief that Ashara may have been John's mother, and Ned Dane's report to Arya that her father and his dead aunt were in love. But many think this doesn't fit well with Ned's personality, and in fact it fits much better with his brother Brandon. In Barristan's point of view, we learn that he himself was in love with Lady Ashara and that one of his biggest regrets was not telling her. In A Dance with Dragons, he thinks, Ashara's daughter had been stillborn and his fair lady had thrown herself from a tower soon after, mad with grief for the child she had lost, and perhaps for the man who had dishonored her at Harrenhal as well. She died never knowing that Sir Barristan had loved her. How could she? He was a knight of the king's guards, sworn to celibacy. No good could have come from telling her his feelings. No good came from silence, either. If I had unhorsed Rhaegar and crowned Ashara queen of love and beauty, might she have looked to me instead of Stark? There's a tantalizing hint there that as Stark was involved in Ashara's dishonor, as Barristan saw it, 
And again, that doesn't seem to fit either Ned's personality or Barristan's seeming acceptance of him as a fellow man of honour during Robert's reign. Throw in Ned's journey to Starfall following the events of the Tower of Joy, apparently to return the sword dawn to the Danes there, and we have a very fuzzy but definite picture of a connection between Ashara and the Starks. So, hopefully, an in-person introduction to Illyria in the Winds of Winter will shine some more light on her origins and on the fate of her sister-stroke-mother, Ashara. It's also possible we might finally get to find out what happened to the young Lord of Starfall, Ned Dane. Last seen on page in A Storm of Swords, he had been traveling with the BWB as Lord Beric's squire, but following Beric's final death, Ned and a number of others, including Angai the Archer from the Dornish Marches, the Mad Huntsman, and the Tyroshi called Greenbeard, all seem to have left the group and departed for parts unknown. Common speculation is that Ned may have headed back to Starfall with Angai in a feast for crows, perhaps to bring Illyria the news of her betrothed's death. Considering that the Mad Huntsman and Greenbeard were last known to be south of the Manda trying to buy food with the gold the BWB acquired from Sandor Clegane, some also think this group may have reunited and will see them all together again in the Winds of Winter. Perhaps Ned did make it back to Starfall and the Winds of Winter will give us a glimpse of him once again, or at least some information on his whereabouts via his aunt, Illyria. But of course, the Dane that we're all waiting to see in Ario Hota's point of view is not at Starfall, or at least he's not expected to be there. The assumption about Darkstar is that when he fled the scene of Arianne's Queenmaker plot, he returned to his own stronghold at High Hermitage. By its very name, we can infer that High Hermitage is remote, and perched at high altitude. A look at the map indicates it's in the Prince's Pass and on the course of the Torrentine River, which the World of Ice and Fire tells us is a fast-flowing river which passes through rapids, waterfalls, and canyons on its way to the sea. So expect High Hermitage to be in a very dramatic location. In A Feast for Crows, Gerald Dane calls Sir Arthur his cousin, and both the A Feast for Crows appendix and the World of Ice and Fire app confirm this relationship. While cousin can mean just about anything in the tangled genealogies of Westeros, given that Ariane thinks of him as a powerful and potential consort, we think there's a good chance that the relationship is a relatively close one, keeping Darkstar in the running to possess the family's famous sword. In A Feast for Crows, when Princess Marcella asks him if he's Sword of the Morning now, Sir Gerald demurs and says, No, men call me Darkstar and I am of the night. Moments later, he complains to Arianne, My house goes back 10,000 years, unto the dawn of days. Why is it that my cousin is the only Dane that anyone remembers? When Sir Ares protests that he was a great knight, Darkstar replies, he had a great sword. The focus on the sword makes us wonder if Darkstar could have designs on Dawn 
and the title that goes with it, keeping in mind that the last member of House Dane to hold the rank of king was one Vorian Dane, who was known as the Sword of the Evening, which sounds very similar to Sir Gerald's chosen moniker. And one thing many readers have speculated about the character of Darkstar, from a writing perspective, is that without the five-year gap, the 12-year-old squire Edric is likely too young to be significant as either a knight or a candidate for the famous sword. And so we got Darkstar, created as a close cousin to explain how the child Edric holds the title, but keeping Gerald Dane firmly as the only adult male of the house that we know of. So, whether Sir Gerald will play a role as the champion of House Dane bearing their famous sword, or whether he's being set up as a foil for someone else who could lay claim to the sword and title when more is revealed about the family and the sword in The Winds of Winter, all of the above is why we definitely expect that he will have a significant role to play going forward and that he will survive his encounter with Obara Sand and Aereo Hotar. And speaking of going forward, we're going to move on now to a discussion of what we think Prince Dorian and House Martell will be up to when the winds of winter reaches our shelves. But first, let's take a short break for these words from Learned Hands Podcast. The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of Westeros. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of Westeros. Admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. Have you been diagnosed with the pox, the shivers, or grayscale? Have you been injured, attacked, poisoned, or otherwise murdered at a wedding? Have your crops or children been devoured by dragons or a 12-year-old girl whose alter ego is a pack of bloodthirsty wolves? Do you need to draft an enforceable will, leaving the Kingdom of the North and the Trident to your bastard half-brother? Are you being wrongfully accused of deicide, regicide, treason, and or boning one or more kettleblacks? If so, you might be entitled to compensation, but you are definitely entitled to listen to Learned Hands, the official podcast of the Westerosi Bar Association. We are two attorneys in real life, and on Learned Hands, we look at the legal, ethical, and good governance type dilemmas in A Song of Ice and Fire and try to solve them in a way that lawyers, judges, and uh, intellectually honest Supreme Courts might look at them. That is, in a fun, accessible an absolutely profanity-laced way. So whether you're sitting through the long night in quarantine or just pining away for the winds of winter, give Learned Hands a listen on any popular podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Learned Hands Pod and learn more about how you can join the Westerosi Bar Association and help real-world legal charities at westerosbar.org. While we cannot guarantee that you recover for your physical, emotional, or magical injuries, we can promise a good time. She narrowed her eyes. What is our heart's desire? Vengeance. His voice was soft, as if he were afraid that someone 
might be listening. Justice. Prince Doran pressed the onyx dragon into her palm with his swollen, gouty fingers and whispered, Fire and blood. In A Feast for Crows, Doran Martell revealed his secret plans to Arianne and the truth of her brother Quentin's mission to Essos. We saw that mission play out and fail in A Dance with Dragons. In the same book, Doran revealed to Arianne that he had received news from Lys. A great fleet has put in there to take on water, volunteer ships chiefly, carrying an army. No word as to who they are or where they might be bound. There was talk of elephants. Readers know this to be the Golden Company, but Doran had hopes it might be his son returning to Westeros with Daenerys and her dragons. But by the beginning of the Winds of Winter, we know from the first Ariane sample chapter, one of two that were moved from A Dance with Dragons to the Winds of Winter, that Doran has received yet another raven, this one from much closer to home. To Prince Doran of House Martell, you will remember me, I pray. I knew your sister well and was a leal servant of your good brother. I grieve for them as you do. I did not die, no more than did your sister's son. To save his life we kept him hidden, but the time for hiding is done. A dragon has returned to Westeros to claim his birthright and seek vengeance for his father and for the princess Ilia, his mother. In her name, I turn to Dorne. Do not forsake us. John Connington, Lord of Griffin's Roost, Hand of the True King. When this message arrived, offering what appeared to be Dorne's heart's desire, vengeance, fire and blood, we told Doran had questions. What proof do we have that this is Aegon? Where are the dragons? Where is Daenerys? The final question went unspoken. Where is my son? And so Ariane's mission to the Stormlands became necessary, and we'll cover most of that in the next chapter of this series, keeping our focus on Dawn and Doran in this one. When Arianne left on her journey to Griffin's Roost, she was, as with her Queenmaker plot, in a group of seven. This one comprised of her sworn shield, Sir Damon Sand, two other knights, a lady-in-waiting, and her cousin, Elia Sand, eldest of Alaria and Oberyn's four daughters. Alaria herself took her youngest daughter, Lorisa, back to her father's stronghold at Halholt, while the other two, Doria and Obella, remained at the Water Gardens and Sunspear, respectively. Ariane was also accompanied by a serving man called Feathers, who carried seven ravens, which would be used to communicate with Doran at the water gardens once they had left Dawn. In the second Ariane preview chapter, she sends four messages alerting her father of news from the Weeping Town and Mistwood on Cape Wrath, the intelligence she gleamed from one of the Golden Company regarding John Connington's intentions to take Storm's End, and the certain news from Lysono Mar that Daenerys and her dragons remained in Slaver's Bay. 
we can probably assume that a fifth would be sent after the end of that chapter, telling of her upcoming journey by ship to meet with John Connington at Storm's End, which Halden Halfmaster at Griffin's Roost informed her had fallen to Aegon. Storm's End is ours, the hand awaits you there. A ship will have the princess there in half a day or less. There is an army descending on Storm's End from King's Landing. You want to be safe inside the walls before the battle. Prince Aegon means to smash his enemies in the field. And again, while most of these developments will fall into the scope of the next installment of this series, it's pertinent here to note that Doran is now almost certainly aware that his eldest son is missing, that John Connington has taken Storm's End in the name of Doran's purported nephew, and that his daughter and heir is on her way to meet them there. These facts will undoubtedly color any actions he takes early in the Winds of Winter. What action he takes will depend largely on the final messages Ariane sends. We know that there are two Dornish armies under the command of Lords Ironwood and Fowler, waiting in the Boneway and the Prince's Pass. With regard to Ariane's mission, it says, One word from Ariane and those armies would march, so long as the word was dragon. If instead the word she sent was war, Lord Ironwood and Lord Fowler and their armies would remain in place. The Prince of Dawn was nothing if not subtle. Here, war meant wait. So the fate of Dorne rests with Ariane Martell and what she discovers and the decisions she makes early in the Winds of Winter. That she will be extremely cautious in that decision-making goes without saying. It's made clear in the sample chapters that the Golden Company alone has no hope of prevailing against the Lannister-Tyrell alliance. While in A Feast for Crows, Doran had reminded his daughter, Dorne is the least populous of the Seven Kingdoms. It pleased the young dragon to make all our armies larger when he wrote that book of his, so as to make his conquest that much more glorious— and it has pleased us to water the seed he planted and let our foes think us more powerful than we are. But a princess ought to know the truth. Valor is a poor substitute for numbers. Dorne cannot hope to win a war against the Iron Throne. Not alone. So, their two armies notwithstanding, it's highly likely that Ariane and Doran will be looking for allies other than the 10,000 sellswords of the Golden Company. And that brings us to something that's mentioned twice in Ariohotar's chapters, Dorne's friends at court. In The Captain of the Guard, Doran mentions that he had charged Oberyn with discovering friends in King's Landing if there are any to be found. Then in The Watcher, when relating the details of Cersei's plot to kill Tristane, he says, Dawn has still friends at court, friends who tell us things we were not meant to know. And with Nymeria and Tyne Sand en route to King's Landing, one of the biggest questions for that thread of the Dornish storyline is who those friends at court might be, and if they'll still be there in the Winds of Winter. 
So let's take a few minutes to review who the possibilities are. So we know that Dawn's friend, or friends, as Doran puts it, and note the use of the plural, which is possibly significant, were likely recruited by Oberyn during his brief tenure in King's Landing, and so our candidates should be people who were present in King's Landing when Oberyn arrived about a month prior to Joffrey and Marjorie's wedding, or themselves arrived shortly thereafter and was still there around the time of Cersei Four in A Feast for Crows when she thinks briefly about Sir Balon's mission to Dawn. Sir Balon would have another task as well, but that part was best left unsaid. So that's a window of about three months, and because of the secret nature of Balon's mission, we can narrow it down even further to people who would either be in Cersei's confidence in A Feast for Crows, or who could easily spy on her or her accessories. In our opinion, that list then becomes very short. Known spies, Kyburn and Varys, and Cersei's new friends, Orain Waters and Taina and Orton Merriweather. And so let's go through this list one by one to see if anyone can be ruled out starting with Kyburn, Although Kyburn is very likely in on the plan to send the probably fake Gregor Clegane skull to the Martells, and may well also be in on the Tristane plot, making him a prime candidate who is in Cersei's confidence, in our opinion he is a very weak option as the Dornish spy, since he essentially only overlapped with Oberyn in the capital by a matter of days, arriving with Jaime after the Purple Wedding and only a few days before Tyrion's trial and Oberyn's death. Yeah, and as he'd been riding with Varga Hoth's brave companions prior to that, we find Kyburn to be not a great option. Our next candidate is Orain Waters. Born a bastard of House Valerian, Waters served in Stannis' navy until he was captured at the Blackwater, after which he bent the knee to Joffrey and became one of Cersei's favorites, eventually being elevated to Tommen's small council as Grand Admiral and Chief Rhaegar lookalike, before fleeing the city after Cersei's arrest with her brand new fleet of Dromans, setting up shop in the Stepstones as... Lord of the Waters, if all the hints are correct. In the last instalment of this series, when discussing the motivations and secret agendas of various people in King's Landing, we identified Orain Waters as someone who could be working for a secret faction. Varys is a distinct possibility here, though there are other options as well, which we think could also include Dawn either directly or indirectly if Varys is the one feeding Doran information. Orain Waters strikes us as someone who was definitely ripe to be recruited by someone as a spy, since he had no real position in the capital following his capture and before Cersei's elevation of him to the small council, which occurred well after Oberyn's death. In fact, working as a spy for someone could explain why Orain seemed to be so keen to flatter Cersei and get in her good graces, though self-interest certainly covers that as well. 
and self-interest could also explain the case of Tainer and Orton Merriweather, who were similarly elevated by Cersei during her campaign to uproot people loyal to her brothers and the Tyrells from Tommen's government. Cersei thinks of Tainer as her one true friend, but we presented the evidence that she may have been working for Varys in the last instalment. We think there's also a reasonable chance that Tainer could have been recruited by Oberyn. She's certainly sensuous enough to have caught his eye, and Dawn does have a history of working with Mirish allies. Furthermore, Lord Orton could be angling to ally himself with someone who would promise to restore the lands that Aerys II attainted from his grandfather, who was hand at the outset of Robert's rebellion and was banished for his failure to contain it. Though Robert restored the title to the grandson and some of the lands, we can be sure he didn't go far enough and that the Merryweathers could be seeking a way to regain their past wealth. Though an alliance with Dorne wouldn't do that outright, perhaps one with Varys and the supposed Prince Aegon would. And so we arrive at Varys, in our opinion, the best candidate. If the most obvious, Varys being Dorne's chief friend would explain why Doran used the plural term friends in A Dance with Dragons. Varys has a well-known network of spies, and the ones we've mentioned here are only the highest profile of the lot. If Varys was secretly feeding information to Oberyn, and later Doran, and Orain and the Merryweathers also work for him then three of our four candidates would be considered Doran's friends at court, which fills in a lot of gaps. Yes, it does. We'd have Varys and his network of little birds collecting information from the shadows, Orain from the small council, and Tana from Cersei's private chambers. All in all, a grand slam of information gathering that would likely net the level of detailed information that Doran received about the Tristane plot. In fact, the one detail Doran does not seem to be aware of with regard to Balon Swan's mission is the fact that the head sent to Dorne was very likely not the head of Sir Gregor Clegane. This, in our opinion, is the final detail that disqualifies Kyburn from being a spy for Doran, as he is the one person besides Cersei who would possess that information. And there's one last thing in support of Varys being Dorne's chief friend. In A Game of Thrones, Varys mentions to Ned that, quote, In Dawn, the Martells still brood on the murder of Princess Elia and her babes, a relatively minor detail, but a clear indicator that Varys was aware of Doran's mindset and the implications of Dornish involvement in the politics of the realm. Varys was obviously playing a long game of destabilisation from the very beginning of the story, and feeding Dawn information about the Lannisters would certainly aid that effort. What this theory falls short of is implying any overarching intention of involving Dorne in the Aegon plot. 
And this may be because Varys was aware of Dorne's agreement to marry Arian to Viserys, or even of Quentin's mission, and was waiting to see how those events would play out, or perhaps he simply hadn't seen fit to bring Doran into the circle fully. Furthermore, it's highly likely that the author's intentions with regard to Varys and Dorne have changed significantly since he wrote those words in A Game of Thrones. In any case, John Connington takes that step himself without any apparent input from his handler Illyrio early in The Winds of Winter, though we cannot rule out his letter to Dorne being some part of the plan all along. We also can't rule out the friends being someone else entirely, especially if there's someone Doran is relying on to provide military alliance, as Varys certainly wouldn't be offering much in that regard. And so, where does all of this leave Nymeria and Tyene in the Winds of Winter? If the candidates we've identified were indeed the friends at court, by the time the Sand Snakes arrive, most of them are fled, or reign with the Dramons to the Stepstones, where they could be waiting for an opportunity to join Aegon's cause, and the Merryweathers back to Longtable from where we suspect they will be part of what we'll call Aegon's Friends in the Reach, which we'll be discussing in the next episode. Varys has caused the deaths of both Kevin Lannister and Pycelle, and we don't know if he will continue his secret residence in the Red Keep, or if he will also leave the capital. Our money would be on him staying as long as possible in order to have ears in the Red Keep, but should the situation become overly dangerous, he would certainly head south to join Aegon. All of which could leave Nymeria and Tyene without friends in the capital, which may or not impact their operation there. After all, they're capable and cunning young women with a clear agenda from Doran, not to mention one of their own. Doran's instructions to them to infiltrate the small council and the faith are part of his long game of vengeance for his sister's death, but the Sand Snakes have a clearly stated desire to also take vengeance for the death of their father. As we mentioned in the King's Landing episode, we expect that this might become foremost in their minds once they realize that Robert Strong is almost certainly a rebranded Gregor Clegane. Yeah, with regard to what actions Nymeria will take in the capital, we should not forget two things she told her uncle in Dawn. In A Feast for Crows, she said, quote, Four lives will suffice for me. Lord Tywin's golden twins as payment for Elia's children, the old lion for Elia herself, and last of all, the little king for my father. Later in A Dance with Dragons, she says, If Gregor Clegane is alive, soon or late the truth will out. The man was eight feet tall. There is not another like him in all of Westeros. If any such appears again, Cersei Lannister will be exposed as a liar before all the Seven Kingdoms. While Tywin has died and Jaime disappeared since she made that first comment, whatever her orders from her uncle may be, we should keep our eyes on Nymeria's potential for taking matters into her own hands with regard to Cersei, Tommen, and the eight-foot-tall Robert Strong. 
Doran's plans initially rested on the hope that his eldest son would be able to forge an alliance with Daenerys Targaryen and her three dragons. Though he has yet to learn of his son's death, by early in the Winds of Winter he learns that a young man claiming to be his nephew, Aegon, has arrived in Westeros accompanied by Lord John Connington and the Golden Company. Like Varys and Illyrio, Doran finds himself having to adjust his plans yet again. In A Feast for Crows, he told Ariane how he had adjusted his plans to marry her to Viserys Targaryen by sending Quentin to seek Daenerys after Viserys' death. We princes make our careful plans and the gods smash them all awry. And he's adjusting his careful plans yet again in sending Arianne to meet John Connington and evaluate the young man calling himself Aegon Targaryen. Like Varys and Illyrio making changes based on the rash behavior of characters like Catelyn Stark, Jaime Lannister, Viserys and Daenerys Targaryen, and finally, even their principal Aegon, all of these players are learning the truth of something Peter Baelish tells Sansa Stark in A Feast for Crows. In the Game of Thrones, even the humblest pieces can have wills of their own. Sometimes they refuse to make the moves you planned for them. As much as Doran is adjusting his plans to meet the reality on the ground, we can be sure his focus will remain on vengeance and that he'll align with whichever factions offer the clearest path to that goal. But, that said, it's certainly valid to ask why, after all these years, and after what appeared to be the betrayal of his sister by both her Targaryen husband and father-in-law, he has chosen to stay loyal to House Targaryen. Yeah, many people, both in story and without, believe that Rhaegar callously left his wife in favour of Lyanna Stark, and Ares certainly prevented Elia and her children from seeking the safety of Dragonstone when he sent Rhaella and Viserys there, holding her in King's Landing almost certainly against her will, and definitely against all common sense, in order to ensure her brother's continued loyalty. So Doran's long game of alliance with Ares's exiled children seems passing strange upon reflection. It does. And the answer, we suppose, will be twofold. First, it's possible with regard to Rhaegar that Doran knows more than we, or others in the story do. John Connington's letter certainly seems to assume a continued loyalty to Rhaegar. Second, whatever Ares might have done, it's incontrovertible that it was the Lannisters who were responsible for the deaths of Elia and her children, as well as Ares himself. So there's likely a bond of shared trauma and more than a little element of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right all of which will certainly add up to big trouble for Cersei in King's Landing in the Winds of Winter. In this episode, we've kept our focus mainly on Dorne. In the next installment of this series, we'll be looking at Arianne's mission to the Stormlands and what's going to be happening at Storm's End in the Winds of Winter 
as word of Aegon's invasion and subjugation of that region begins to spread. Dawn has played a relatively minor role in the series so far. One thing we can be sure the Winds of Winter will bring is a much greater focus on the land of Sands and Scorpions. And that is something we can all look forward to. Thanks so much for joining us for this installment of our Winds of Winter Primer. We'll be back soon with another regular episode, and don't forget to catch our live streams where we'll discuss a lot more about the characters from this episode with guests. And speaking of guests, thanks so much to the crew from Learned Hands Podcast for the ad we used in this episode. If you haven't checked them out, find them on Stitcher or Podbean or wherever you find your podcasts. And now, as always, it's time to pay credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. Martin for Dorn and its many intriguing characters, and thanks to Kevin McLeod and Kai Angle for allowing us to use their music in our production. And we'll end today, as usual, with thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. Thanks to the following incredible people. AJ, Aegon VI, Alex, Amanda, Oakenfist, Nessie the Questing Beast, Arion, Biloba, Brian, Camille, Charitable Rereadings, Chris B, Christopher, Christian, Christine, Maddie and Jessica, Clarissa, Clay, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Crimson Kate, Dag Blabla, Dan S, Dimitri B, Dennis Direwolf, Dutch Defender of the Berm, Eric, Emily of the Erie, Ezra, Felix, Jeffrey, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Aiden, Ingveld, Archmaester Colby of the Higher Mysteries, Jamie the Joint Slayer, Brendan B. Fish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, Vesivus, Joseph, Jigsaw, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Sonarion the White Storm, Judson, Catherine, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Brash Candy, Kevin, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of What, Knight of the Laughing Tree, Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lauren, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, first of his name, Matt L, second of his name. And thanks as well to Lady Beatrix of House Grey, Melinda, Maester Mary, Michael M, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, Richard, Sam, Scott Greenseer, Scott, Sebastian, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift, Sherry, Cern, Spend Trails, That Shiny Bastard, Tanner, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Theo, the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hema Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel, Virginie, Core and Halfhand, Whitney, Woodside for Life, Yvonne, and Zainab. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, and comment on our content there. Or find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or Spotify. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, or email. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.